Hi. So we know that you're listening to this at a very different time these days, but we recorded this episode, which was the first in our educational inequality issue arc for election 2020 way back before there was shelter in place or before COVID-19 words and an acronym that we even knew about. So we understand that things are really different now, but the scary thing about this episode and the thing that makes it still relevant now is that educational inequality has probably been even more exacerbated due to the spread of COVID-19, the shelter in place restrictions, and the fact the need that schools were serving, especially public schools throughout this country, has been drastically changed as students find themselves without access to technology, without access to food, or without access to a lot of other things that we largely took for granted. So we hope that you really listen to this episode. And if you're wondering why this is still an issue now in COVID-19, you're not looking hard enough. So true. The other part of the exciting news is that I, Sarah, have been asked to be a mentor for the Women of Color Incubator over at Colorado's House of Pod, which is super exciting. I did mention, I was like, I only have a little color. I'm not like super colorful. I'm half Japanese, but they did take me anyway. And so applications for this incubator, it's a six-week program. It's free to participants. It includes training by local and national industry professionals. Basically, it's there for women of color to continue to tell their stories and produce meaningful art during COVID-19 and beyond. And so we wanted to let you know applications are open until May 8th and local applicants are prioritized because all participants are going to receive an annual membership to the House of Pod Studio. But if you have any questions or know people in Colorado, direct them to Becca, B-E-C-C-A, at houseofpod.org. Welcome to the Dear White Women podcast. We're your hosts, Sarah and Misasha. And today we get to talk about educational inequality. And if you've been listening for a while, or if you're new, hello, you know that Misasha and I met while we were undergrads at Harvard. But if you also know us, you know we don't discuss being Harvard grads that much for a whole host of reasons. One of the biggest reasons being if you ever make a mistake that comes back to bite you hard in the ass. And MK, if you're listening, I'm talking to you, mocking me about not knowing enough French. Misasha, do you know this story? Uh, I mean, is it the Yosemite one? No, it was the, I said French. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to get that in there. No, I, ha- I don't know this story. Poor Om. I was at like an airport. I'm just going to blame jet lag, except I think you go through duty free before you go through the airplane. And I saw these things called P-O-U-R-H-O-M-M-E and they were sprayers. And I was like, oh, it's like room freshener for the home. And she heard that story and was just like, oh my gosh, it's like cologne for men. And I'm like, oh. I guess we all have our own stories on that front then. What's your damn story then, Yosemite? Thanks for remembering. No, I was in Tokyo and I totally messed up the math on something for like one of the JP Morgan things. And the Singaporeans on the team had been waiting for this moment. They were just like, thought you went to Harvard. How's that math working out for you? It's like, look, I didn't even take math at Harvard. So nice try. (laughs) That was my high school math. (laughs) That was fundamental. Apparently, I've already failed that. So yeah. Yes, but no, I definitely remember that because they announced that very loudly and we had open floor, so. Oh, yeah. So in researching this episode 
it does turn out that Harvard has been doing some amazing work examining the root causes of income inequality, which is to say, educational inequality. And the Harvard Gazette specifically in February of 2016 released a great article on educational inequality that we're going to pull a lot from for today's podcast, starting with their profile of Deval Patrick, who is the former presidential candidate and basically a guy who's done a ton of stuff in his life. Before Deval Patrick, who was a Harvard undergrad in 1978, and he graduated from the law school, so total underachiever in 1982, was a popular and successful two-term governor of Massachusetts before he was the managing director of high-flying Bain Capital and long before he was Harvard's 2015 commencement speaker. He was a poor black school child in the battered housing projects of Chicago's South Side. The odds of his escaping a poverty-ridden lifestyle, despite being very smart and having a lot of drive, were long. So how did he help mold his own narrative and triumph over this baked-in societal inequality through education? Education has been the path to better opportunity for generations of American strivers, no less for me, Patrick said in an email to the Gazette when asked how getting a solid education, in his case, at Milton Academy and then at Harvard, changed his life. When great, what great teachers gave me was not just the skills to take advantage of new opportunities, but the ability to imagine what those opportunities could be. For a kid from the south side of Chicago, that's huge. I mean, if inequality starts anywhere, many scholars agree it's with faulty education. And on the flip side, a strong education can act as like this magical key that opens gates through every other aspect of inequality, whether that's political, economic, racial, judicial, gender, or health-based. And so... I mean, simply put, a top-flight education usually changes lives for the better. And yet here, in the world's most prosperous major nation, it really remains an elusive goal for millions of children and teenagers. I mean, side note here, what is a public school? Because we'll talk eventually about public versus private schools, but when we're talking about education funded by the government, it's a public school, which is largely defined as a federally funded school administered to some extent by the government and charged with educating all citizens. And since the beginning of this foundation of public schooling, the government has struggled to answer the following questions, which, if we're honest, are really tough to define even when we mull it over ourselves. One is, what is the primary purpose of public education? Two, who should be able to receive the educational services provided to the general public? And three, how does the government ensure consistently high quality in the educational services it provides? We've come a long way from 1635 when the first school was formed and when it was designed to teach children Puritan values and how to read the Bible. And throughout the changes that we've seen in the Department of Education over more than the last century, the goals of the agency do remain intact. And the website of the Department of Education articulates this goal, to promote student achievement and preparation for global competitiveness by fostering educational excellence and ensuring equal access. So going back to that first school in 1635, that, you know, migrated into sort of a revolutionary concept of free non-sectarian public schools, which spread across America in the 19th century. So not a ton necessarily widespread before then, but in the 19th century, that's when we saw the concept of the public school really expand. And by 1970, America had the world's leading educational system. And until 1990, the gap between minority and white students, while clear, was narrowing. 
But educational gains in this country have plateaued since then, and the gap between white and minority students has proven stubbornly difficult to close, says Ronald Ferguson, who is an adjunct lecturer in public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and the faculty director of Harvard's Achievement Gap Initiative. That gap extends along class lines as well. In recent years, scholars such as Ferguson, who is an economist, have puzzled over the ongoing achievement gap and what to do about it, even as other nations' school systems at first matched and then surpassed their U.S. peers. And and here's some perspective for you listeners. Among the 34 market-based, democracy-leaning countries in the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, which you often see abbreviated as OECD, the United States ranks around 20th annually. I'm still going to laugh. <laughs> and this is 20th out of 34. And so we're earning average or below average grades in reading and in science and in math. So we are not winning in this country here, folks. All right. As Harvard economist Roland J. Fryer Jr. noted in 2015, by eighth grade, only 44% of American students are proficient in reading and math. The proficiency of African-American students, many of them in underperforming schools, is even lower. Education may be the key to solving broader American inequality, but we have to solve educational inequality first. Ferguson says there is progress being made, there are encouraging examples to emulate, that an early start is critical, and that a lot of hard work lies ahead. But he also says there's nothing more important we can do. The position of U.S. black students is truly alarming, wrote Fryer, who, as we mentioned, is also an economist and the Henry Lee Professor of Economics. And he used the OECD rankings as a metaphor for minority standing educationally. If they were to be considered a country they would rank just below Mexico in last place. And I guess, why should this matter to white Americans? And it's because we're all part of one society. And we've talked about averages, but our averages do make up our whole. And these are still all of our kids here, kids who will grow up with our actual children, kids who will interact with them, work with them, work for them, or vice versa. And we rise by lifting others. We are in it together. This is our system, our country that we have created and perpetuated. So it does matter to every single one of us listening on this episode. Right. And Harvard Graduate School of Education, Dean James E. Ryan, who is a former public interest lawyer, says geography has an immense power in determining educational opportunity in America. As a scholar, he has studied how policies in the law affect learning and how conditions are often vastly unequal. His book, Five Miles Away, A World Apart, which was published in 2010, is a case study of the disparity of opportunity in two Richmond, Virginia schools, one grimly urban and the other richly suburban. Geography, he says, mirrors achievement levels. Right now, there exists an almost ironclad link between a child's zip code and her chances of success, he says. Our education system, traditionally thought of as the chief mechanism to address the opportunity gap, instead too often reflects and entrenches existing societal inequities. So urban schools really often demonstrate this problem. In New York City, for example, only 8% of black males graduating from high school in 2014 were prepared for college-level work. That figure is astounding, actually. 8%. Yes. According to the college university, I was trying to remember what that acronym stands for, Institute for Educational Policy, with Latinos close behind at 11%. The preparedness rates for Asians and whites, which were 48 and 40% respectively, were, I mean, to be honest, unimpressive too, but nonetheless were firmly on the other side of the achievement gap. 
In some impoverished urban pockets, the racial gap is even larger. In Washington, D.C., and this stat was completely astounding to me, 8% of black eighth graders are proficient in math, while 80% of their white counterparts are. Wow. I mean, that's huge. Right? And Fryer said that in kindergarten, black children are already eight months behind their white peers in learning. By third grade, the gap is bigger, and by eighth grade, is larger still. According to a recent report by the Education Commission of the States, black and Hispanic students in kindergarten through 12th grade perform on a par with the white students who languish in the lowest quartile of achievement. That is to say, the bottom 25th percent of the class. Wow. I mean, to emphasize, which if you're listening to this, you hopefully already know this, and it's a really just important to state, this gap is not because they are brown people. Okay. It's because of the access to quality education and a host of other systemic issues they're often faced with, which we'll get into later in this episode. But there's nothing inherently biological about any of this. This is all circumstantial. So I just want to make that 100% clear. There was once a lot of faith and hope in America's school systems, and the rise of quality public education a century ago was probably the best public policy decision Americans have ever made because it simultaneously raised the whole growth rate of the country for most of the 20th century, and it leveled the playing field. And that's from Robert Putnam, the Peter and Isabel Malkin Professor of Public Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, who has written several best-selling books touching on inequality, including one called Bowling Alone, The Collapse and Revival of the American Community, and including also Our Kids, The American Dream in Crisis. So historically, upward mobility in America was really characterized by each generation becoming better educated than the previous one. And that's said Harvard economist Lawrence Katz. But that trend, which sort of is this core part of our mythology of success in America, has really fallen off and gotten weaker, especially for minorities. Kat said 30 years ago, a typical American had two more years of schooling than their parents. Today, we have the most educated group of Americans, but they only have about 0.4 more years of schooling. So that's one part of mobility not keeping up in the way we've invested in education in the past. And as globalization has transformed and kind of sometimes undercut the American economy, education is not keeping up. Kat said, there's continued growth of demand for more abstract higher end skills that schools are not delivering. And then that feeds into a weakening of institutions like unions and minimum wage protections. So there's a huge interconnectedness in all of these systems and things that are happening right now. Yes. And Fryer, who's that Harvard economist that you mentioned earlier, he is African-American and grew up poor in a segregated Florida neighborhood. His argument is that outright discrimination has lost its power as a primary driver behind inequality and instead uses economics as a rational forum for discussing social issues. He set out in 2004 to use an economist's data and statistical tools, basically his background, to answer why black students often do poorly in schools compared with whites. His years of research have convinced him that good schools would close the education gap faster and better than addressing any other social factor, including curtailing poverty and violence, and he believes that the quality of the K-12 through education matters above all. Supporting his belief is research that says the number of schools achieving excellent student outcomes is a large enough sample to prove that much better performance is possible. Despite the poor performance by many U.S. states, some have shown that strong results are possible on a broad scale. 
For instance, if Massachusetts were a nation, it would rate among the best performing countries. I mean, didn't we mention that in Massachusetts, slavery was mentioned over 150 times in their curriculum textbooks versus southern states and even Idaho that were like under five times that they mentioned slavery? I mean, this was in a previous episode about education that we've had, but it shows teaching diversity and teaching different narratives does not hurt academic or human achievement. Preach. At the Harvard Graduate School of Education, where Ferguson is a lecturer and the faculty co-chair, as well as director of the Achievement Gap Initiative, they really look at all of many different factors. So in these past 10 years, he, and he is also Black, has studied every identifiable element contributing to unequal educational outcomes. But lately, he's really been focusing on improving children's earliest years, from infancy to age three. In addition to an organization he founded called the Tripod Project, which measures student feedback on learning, he launched the Boston Basics Project in August of 2015 with support from the Black Philanthropy Fund, Boston's mayor, and others. The first phase of the outreach campaign, which is a booklet, videos, and spot ads, starts with advice to parents of children age three or younger. Maxima, and you know, when I was researching this and writing this, I thought about you, Sarah, in this part, because the mantra of this program is maximize love, manage stress, right? It's, it's not only its mantra, but it's foundational imperative, followed by concepts such as talk, sing, and point. Talking, as Ferguson says, is teaching. In early childhood, the difference in life experiences begins at home. I love, first of all, that you thought of me. If anyone's been in my house, the word love appears and like in so many different iterations in decor around the house. And I really do believe in the power of that and also managing stress and all that sort of stuff. Hello, positive psych again. But speaking of what you just mentioned, that the difference in life experiences begins at home and really emphasizing the importance of the really young infancy, like childhood brain development. Have I told you about this insanely cool vest? It's called the Lena vest. Yeah, but I think it's amazing. All right. So locally in Denver, there are some kids in a high school for pregnant and parenting teens, which have been given access to this Lena vest for their young children. I mean, the school is also revolutionary. It's got the school for the high schoolers to actually graduate high school. And within the school, they have a very great education program for the infants and toddlers of these high schoolers. So they're in school together with their children, and they get to check on them, and they're taught parenting classes. It's just an incredible program to break the cycle to make sure their children are given advantages too. So this vest, going back to it, has a recording device in it. And it measures how many words are spoken to the child. And it filters out sound like, you know, you can't just put the kid in front of a TV and say the words are spoken to them. It measures out, you know, filters out other conversations because I think it became clear that preschoolers need to hear, I'm sure it's not an exact number, but ballpark 21,000 words per day. You can't really count that as you go through and have a conversation. But The point of it is that parents need to be engaging with their children in order for them to have that edge. I mean, these are preschoolers, itty bitty ones. So what the teen parents do in this school is basically compete with themselves to improve upon their word count every time they get to have their little ones wear the vest over the weekend. So it's a super cool program and excellent use of technology, in my opinion. I love that. And it's right in line with the research that's coming out because Fryer and Ferguson agree that the achievement gap starts early. At age one, white, Asian, black, and Hispanic children score virtually the same in what Ferguson calls skill patterns that measure cognitive ability among toddlers, including examining objects, exploring purposefully, and expressive jabbering. 
But by age two, gaps are apparent, with Black and Hispanic children scoring lower in expressive vocabulary, listening comprehension, and other indicators of acuity. I mean, if you think about it, if it's at all connected to income, how many parents, and this is a really broad statement here, but how many parents are staying home with their kids in lower income families to be able to speak with their little itty bitty ones that much instead of working two or three jobs in order to keep the family afloat, right? Food and a roof over your head is probably more critical than words spoken in terms of, you know, parents like providing for their kids, but they're all critical to thriving. And it's really becoming clear that it's incredibly important for young children. And so that really does suggest that educational achievement involves more than just schooling, which typically starts at age five. There's a lot that goes into human development before you start schooling that makes a big difference for the rest of your life. And so researchers are saying the key factors in the gap include poverty rates, which are three times higher for black people than for white people, diminished teacher and school quality, unsettled neighborhoods, ineffective parenting, personal trauma, and peer group influence, which only strengthens as children grow older, as we know. So the point of this is education alone isn't enough, but it does move the needle significantly if you start early. And we'll be talking more about when this doesn't happen in our next episode. So stay tuned. As Ferguson states, peer beliefs and values get quote, trapped in culture and are compounded by the outsized influence of peers and the pluralistic ignorance they spawn. Friar's research, for instance, says that the reported stigma of, quote, acting white among many black students is true. The better they do in school, the fewer friends they have, while for whites who are perceived as smarter, there's an opposite social effect. I mean, white people listening, do you realize that there's a cultural subtext going on in our kids' school here, like this for black children? The researchers say that family upbringing matters in all its crisscrossing influences and complexities, and that often undercuts minority children who can come from poor or troubled homes. Ferguson says, or is it Fryer's research in this one, but unequal outcomes are from, to a large degree, inequality in life experiences. And if you think about it also, trauma subverts achievement, whether it's through family turbulence, street violence, bullying, sexual abuse, intermittent homelessness. And those factors can lead to behaviors in school that reflect a pervasive form of childhood post-traumatic stress disorder. So with the help from faculty co-chair and Jesse Clemenko, professor of law, Charles J. Ogletree, the Achievement Gap Initiative at Harvard is analyzing the factors that make educational inequality such a complex puzzle. So as we've talked about home and family life, school environments, teacher quality, neighborhood conditions, peer interaction, and the fate of, quote, all those wholesome things, said Ferguson. So that latter category, which is kind of nebulous, includes working hard in schools, showing respect, having nice friends, and following the rules, traits that can be sort of an elements of a 21st century movement for equality. So in the end, Fryer believes best practices to create strong schools will matter the most. And he calls high-quality education the new civil rights battleground in a landmark 2010 working paper for the Handbook of Labor Economics called Racial Inequality in the 21st Century, the Declining Significance of Discrimination. And in order to do this, he looked at 10 large data sets on children 8 months to 17 years old. So basically sort of that entire childhood span from basically infancy until you're heading almost off to higher education if you take that route. He studied charter schools, scouring for standards that worked. He champions longer school days and school years, data-driven instruction, small group tutoring, high expectations, and a school culture that prizes human capital. 
all really just a few simple investments, he wrote. The challenge for the future is to take these examples to scale across the country. So if you're thinking about closing that gap, how long would that take with a national commitment to do so? A best practices experiment that Fryer conducted at low achieving high schools in Houston closed the gap in math skills within three years and narrowed the reading achievement gap by a third. You don't need Superman for this, he said, referring to a film about Jeffrey Canada and his Harlem Children's Zone. You just need high quality schools for everyone to restore 19th century educator Horace Mann's vision of public school as society's balance wheel. But he's optimistic about what the future will bring. I mean, that's good that there's optimism there. Have you seen Superman? No, but I want to. Yeah, I remember when it came out or and it was on my list and I still haven't watched it. So I would definitely have that on my watch sooner list now. But one point that you we talked about above is really interesting personally, because we as a nation often align the educational inequality argument with access to private schools. And it's true that in national studies, students who attend private schools tend to, on average, have better percentages of graduates going on to higher education and maybe to more selective colleges and universities. But like everything, it's not that simple. And a great Upworthy article details this. A recent study from 2018 showed better private school outcomes, but with a huge asterisk. When a family's wealth is factored out, the difference in private and public school outcomes disappears entirely. Is that shocking to you? Because it was shocking to me when I heard that. Yeah, it was sort of my biggest takeaway. I was like, what? Right. I did not expect that. Researchers at the University of Virginia found that when socioeconomic factors were controlled for in the study, all of the advantages of private school were negated. And the study also found, quote, no evidence to suggest that low-income children or children enrolled in urban schools benefited more from private school enrollment. I mean, that's huge, because I remember personally thinking about private school, public school, the pros and cons, you know, do we want to have to pay for a private school when there's a perfectly good public school? What makes it a perfectly good public school? I mean, this is just, as a parent, when you're mulling over what you want for your child, you think about these things. But to hear this now, wow. Yeah. You know, kids from the same socioeconomic class have similar outcomes, whether they attend public school or private school. In other words, it's the ability to afford private school that makes the difference, not the private school itself. And since private school attendees tend to come from wealthier families, they generally, therefore, have better outcomes. But money, not the educational approach or the quality of instruction offered in private schools, appears to be the driving factor. I mean, I still am mind blown by this, but parents, of course, choose private school for a whole host of reasons. And having that choice is important. But it's important to emphasize that it shouldn't be at the expense of public education. Not all parents who choose to send their kids to private school do so for academic reasons. I mean, some parents want their kids to have a religious element to their education. Some really want a specific educational philosophy that can only be found in a private school setting. So having a variety of educational options is a good thing. However, if a parent feels compelled to send their kids to a private school over a public school for academic reasons, the data doesn't appear to be in their favor. And using such arguments to support voucher programs is disingenuous at best. I'm looking at our Secretary of Education about this because Betsy DeVos proposed an education budget in February that allocated $1 billion to private school vouchers and other school initiatives and slashed $3.6 billion from the Department of Education. So many of America's poorest children, especially African and American and Hispanic children, attend failing public schools that offer them little hope of fulfilling their great potential, President Trump said in his budget summary. 
And just to interrupt for a second, let's look at vouchers for a moment, because what does that mean? And so I just want to explain it. School vouchers that they're talking about here that all the funds were moved to give parents the freedom to choose a private school for their children using all or part of the public funding set aside for their children's education. So under a program like this, funds typically spent by a school district would be allocated to a participating family in the form of a voucher. And that voucher would pay partially or maybe full tuition for their child's private school, including both religious and non-religious options. So there's a lot there. Like you're basically taking the money, which is usually several thousand dollars at least per year out of the public school system to follow you to put into your private school education. Right. And I also wanted to note that I know I said that that was what had happened in February. That was the February that the article came out, which was in 2018, not this February as we're recording it. But if our government's job is to make sure that children have equal access to quality education, we need more support for publicly funded neighborhood schools, not less. If private schools aren't proven to offer a better quality education, then taking money from public schools to provide private school vouchers doesn't make sense. Still looking at you, Betsy. So this data also reinforces the fact that issues in our educational system largely stem from economic inequality. Educational opportunity starts at home, as we discussed, and homes and communities that are struggling are automatically at a disadvantage. Though improving public schools is important, perhaps addressing any economic inequality in general would do more for U.S. education than school choice programs or public education overhauls and would ensure that more children reach their full potential. And some of that lies in the disparity between public school districts and not necessarily the public school private school debate. For decades, studies have shown that public schools with a high number of students living in poverty do not experience the same academic success as public schools in wealthier districts. Many programs have been instituted to narrow the gap in these school districts since the war on poverty was launched by President Johnson in 1965 and the Elementary and Secondary School Act of 1965 was established. Unfortunately, and kind of in line with what we were talking about earlier, recent reports show that instead of narrowing the poverty gap, there is a growing divide between low and high income students at public schools. The Condition of Education 2010 has recently been released by the National Center for Education Statistics. This annual report is federally mandated to provide an assessment of the condition of the educational system in the United States. So the findings from that were discussed in a 2018 article on this report were sobering as they indicate that the gap between high and low poverty schools is a widening one. According to the report, high poverty schools are defined as institutions where at least 75% of the students enrolled are eligible for the free or reduced price lunch program. Approximately 6 million elementary students and 1 million secondary students are enrolled in high poverty schools today. So this National Center for Education Statistics, or the NCES report, looks at a variety of characteristics of high poverty schools, including locations of the schools, characteristics of the students, qualifications and characteristics of faculty, administration, and support staff, graduation rates of students, performance on national assessment of educational progress assessments, those sort of nationwide standardized tests, college enrollment rates after graduation. The report compares high poverty schools to low poverty counterparts to determine the difference between the two. And remember, these schools are all still public schools. According to highlights of the report, the number of high poverty schools has risen since the beginning of the century. During the 1999 and 2000 school year, 15% of elementary and 5% of secondary schools were classified as high poverty institutions. But by the 2007 to 2008 academic year, that number had risen to 20% and 9% respectively. 
I mean, within seven years, seven or eight years, that's a huge jump. That's a lot. Right. So 20% of elementary schools are high poverty schools. Yes. By that 2007 to 2008 academic. I'm wondering where we are a decade later. That's really interesting. So the Associated Press reported that while the average of high poverty schools rose during that time frame, the poverty rate of children rose at a much slower rate. The AP report predicted that discrepancy might have been due to the fact that more children were signing on for the free lunch program in the later part of the decade than in the earlier years. Remember we did a whole episode on the school lunch program a while ago? Yeah. I would listen to that episode if you want to hear how many kids are involved and what the federal government might be doing to mess with the kids who have access to food at school or not. But other findings include of this study, cities are more likely to have a higher percentage of high poverty schools than rural or suburban school districts. In terms of regions, the southern and western part of the country saw some of the largest numbers of high poverty schools. Highest percentages are in states like Mississippi, Louisiana, New Mexico, the District of Columbia, and California. And in some ways, you know how like schools are funded, it's funded by property taxes in our country. So that's really, you know, makes sense that if your property taxes are lower in lower income places, your schools are going to be less funded, too. But students at high poverty schools are more likely to be minorities and have limited English proficiency. Let's look at high schools. High poverty schools see an average high school graduation rate of 68%, while the graduation rate at lower poverty or richer schools is 91%. And then if you're looking at college, only 28% of high school graduates from high poverty schools enrolled in four-year universities compared to 52% of graduates from low poverty schools. Wow. So that disparity just keeps going throughout education, their educational sort of cycle as they move through elementary and secondary schools. And Daria Hall, the director of K-12 policy development at the Education Trust, told the AP that students in high poverty schools start slow and are never able to catch up due to lack of support both at home and at school. We take those students who have less outside of school and we give them less of everything we know contributes to achievement inside of school too, she said. Val Plisko, who is an associate commissioner for early childhood international and cross-cutting studies at the NCES agreed, saying it's a persistent challenge. I mean, just to interject here, I mean, what I remember learning as my kids were growing was that third grade, if by third grade you're not caught up in your reading or your mathematics, you are progressively left behind because things build and build and build on that base of knowledge that they assume kids have and life gets exponentially harder. So it's really that elementary school level matters so much that everybody is caught up because otherwise, as you say, that gap continues to widen. Yeah. And according to a report on the ASCD website, there are many challenges facing low-income students from getting the highest quality of education possible. These challenges include... First, the reading gap, where fewer low-income students are exposed to meaningful reading materials. Second, the conversation gap, which is sort of what we talked about before, but low-income parents have fewer constructive conversations with their children daily, probably because they are also busy working their two to three jobs and trying to figure out how to get food on the table. And the role model gap, low-income children are less likely to be exposed to adults with college educations and professional careers. The ASCD report also cites studies that show that poverty in the United States tends to be deeper and more difficult to escape from than poverty in other countries. Let's just sit on that for a second. It tends to be deeper and more difficult to escape poverty in the United States than it is in other countries. Yes. That's huge to know. 
And I think we cover that too in our that very first episode that we did on income inequality. And every time I hear that, it's still so astounding when you think, you know, if we are this leader in so many things, but if you get on the wrong side of that income gap, you are there. Yeah. And so many people on the upper crust side are like, just pull up your bootstraps, make it work, work harder. And it's not as simple as that. That's so important to really feel and understand. Yeah. And this income gap appears to be widening still in the field of public education, leaving more students unable to dig their way out of the poverty into which they were born. Without sufficient education, including training in computers and other practical skills, students will not be able to get good jobs after high school that will help them adequately support families of their own. Hopefully, you know, in reading this report, politicians and educators will be able to sort of see and open their eyes regarding what they could do and do more to level the playing field for students across the country. And more than politicians and educators, the eyes that also need to be opened are those of parents or even people who know kids. Absolutely. I mean, we get it. School choice is a big, big issue. But you also live in communities throughout this country or throughout the world where taxpayer money helps to build up schools. And you can also see the need for that great school district to exist throughout your state or your country to make sure that everyone succeeds. We have said it before and we'll say it again here at the Dear White Women podcast. We believe that we rise by lifting others. So let's make sure that our education system is doing the same. Please consider voting for initiatives that help that. Look for places that you can help, especially if you're coming from one of the wealthier areas or have time to volunteer and give back to others who might not have that support at home. And because this is still part of our election arc, if you want to see where the current candidates for president stand on issues related to education, Politico's got your back and we've got the link. So follow us and stay tuned. If you like what you've heard or you like what you're hearing, please take a second to rate and review us on whatever podcast platform you use. It would mean a lot. That helps us spread the word about our podcast. Or if you're into direct sharing, tell a friend or five about us. And if you want any more information, go to our website at dearwhitewomen.com. We've got all the past episodes, email signups, and all our social media links from there so you can stay connected and get all the bonus material that we offer. 